Glory to God. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servants in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the gospel of Christ. Christ, Christ this is a big topic, Lord, and... Uh, one that touches each of us in different ways. And we pray that as Deborah speaks, we would hear what it is that you are asking of each one of us. Lord, in your mercy, hear yeah. our prayer. It's good to be with you today. We're continuing our exploration of the seven habits of occasionally effective Christians, which is Tim's slightly tongue-in-cheek take on Stephen Covey's classic book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And today I'm tasked with the second one of these, and one which, like last week's topic, I feel wholly inadequate um, for, because this topic is... Last week it was fasting, this week it's the topic of forgiveness and sort of relating to the topics of repentance and confession. Now when Tim and I first talked about this, um, we had it in mind that we would do confession, repentance and forgiveness. Um, but as this has kind of panned out, I've realised that most of us want to get to our lunch or um, it would be a very long sermon. And I think, um, so I'm going to focus on forgiveness today. Um, I hope you forgive me. 
And hopefully that sermon on confession and all the rest of it will come at some other time. But it's a huge topic, isn't it? And it's one that is so sensitive in so many ways because in ministry and in life you meet people who have been through a lot of worse things than I've ever been through um, and have had terrible things done to them. Um, and some of them have incredibly, unbelievably been able to forgive. Um, in circumstances, I don't think I would have forgiven. Others haven't, and I can fully understand why that's been so hard. And then you meet other people who've had very trivial things seemingly happen to them, and they have not been able to forgive. And the ripples have gone on and on and on through their relationships and families and lives and even different generations. So it's a hard subject, and it's not one where I'm an expert, um, so I'm just going to go through some of the things that I've been reading and thinking about, and hoping that that might be the starter to some of your thinking about that. The first thing that strikes me about this discipline is that, unlike last week's discipline, which was fasting, confession, repentance, forgiveness um, are not merely options for Christians. Fasting, we saw last week, was largely an assumed practice that um, the Jewish community um, performed, a practice that they did, and that uh, the Christian community, the early disciples and the early Christian church, also adopted, albeit on different days of the week, but it was kind of seen as an assumed practice. But it was clearly never something that, for Christians, was an obligation or a scriptural command, whereas Forgiveness is a command. At school this week, the students have been making their Lenten promises. And what we've been doing is we've been writing them on little slips of paper. Um, just a, a promise, and then we're going to put them all together as a chain, a paper chain. And we're going to lay them at the foot of the cross on our last day, uh, which will be the Thursday. It's not there on Good Friday. But when we come back on after Easter, they will then be part of the resurrection and presentation of the cross with flowers. They will be transformed into flowers of the cross that are adorning the cross for resurrection. And some of our students really get the idea of smart target promises, S-M-A-R-T. Um, things that you can do, particularly for Lent, like the 40 days. So a random act of kindness every day for 40 days holding the door open for somebody, or um, doing a good act around um, my family or whatever. That seems to be a sort of smart target, but some of them are sort of missing the point in as much as they tend to be things like, I will do my homework. <laughs> <laughs> or even, I will abstain from breaking the law, which kind of was a bit... <laughs> they were anonymous, so I don't know who put that, but I to try and find out who thinks it's okay for 40 days to just abstain from breaking the law. Um, so again, it's a, that is not a Lenten promise, that's a whole life habit. And in the same way, repentance and forgiveness are, aren't they, whole life habits actually, um, but maybe they are things that we can focus on particularly because they're so huge in Lent. They don't end with a chocolate fest on Easter Sunday. So forgiveness takes us to the very heart of God. It's God's nature to forgive. So when we forgive, we model 
be holy even as your Father in heaven is holy, as Tim was preaching about a few weeks ago. And that means, as we looked at it, being complete, being whole. It doesn't mean being holier than thou, it means being full and complete as your Father in heaven is. And as Christians, this can seem like a platitude, can't it? Something which, yeah, we forgive. It's all part of our faith, it's all part of what we do, it's part of social things. But actually, it wasn't always that way. Forgiveness, anthropologists have shown, is not part of every culture. In fact, it's not a human universal, it's not a biological imperative, and anthropologists like David Constant has noted that, in fact, in the earliest of cultures, like the Greek cultures, pagan cultures, the ones that have been written down, the earliest of writings of civilizations present no idea of forgiveness. There's something that looks like forgiveness, and that is um, what we often take to be forgiveness, actually. And that's appeasement of anger, placating somebody mollifying somebody. The Greek word subnome means, it's sometimes translated forgiveness, but actually it doesn't really mean that entirely. It means exculpation. It means, I forgive you for what you did. Um, not that I forgive you for what you did, but that I understand what you did. You couldn't really help it. You couldn't control it. I feel sorry for you. Or alternatively, I don't need to take revenge because you've shown me by some act of deference towards me that you now hold me in respect. You've restored my dignity. So it's all about me. Psychologically, we often take that to be forgiveness, don't we? We often think that that is forgiveness, but in the Christian sense, it's not really the fullest of forgiveness. In my own life, there was an in-law who caused my family huge trauma in the 1980s and early 1990s. So much so that I blame this man for the untimely death of my mother. And to some extent, I still do believe that their actions led in part to that. And I was angry. I was angry. I wanted revenge. I wanted karma or whatever you call it. Um, and I wasn't the only one. There was a rupture in family relationships and a deep sense of anger and injustice that went on in ripples for years and years. And people who weren't even part of it got taken up in it. But life went on. And many years later, I met this man at an event. And I surprised myself because I didn't feel that anger anymore. I didn't feel that resentment or need to... Um, avoid him or be angry with him. I could talk to him and wish him well and it was strange but I, something had happened. And in retrospect I'm not sure whether that was forgiveness. I'm wondering whether it was really what we just talked about, the Greek word, sunome. I understand what you did. In retrospect I see it in context. You're not the same person and you're different or whatever or I'm different. But whether that was forgiveness, I'm not sure. And I never said to him, I forgive you. Maybe I should have been more proactive. Constant, the, uh, the anthropologist, says that forgiveness actually makes its first appearance in the Hebrew Bible. It appears in the story of Joseph, 
not before the story of Joseph, he says. He's a Christian anthropologist. And he says, actually, if you look at the story of the flood, the Tower of Babel, or Sodom and Gomorrah, you don't hear forgiveness. You hear justice and resolution. In the story of Abraham, Abraham doesn't beg forgiveness for the people of Sodom. He argues on the basis of justice. So it's not until the story of Joseph that we radically find a new thing that uh, Constance says is the first time in written history of those periods in any culture that this forgiveness idea appears. And it is unique to the Jewish people. And it's a process, if you remember, and we could have had the story of Joseph as our Old Testament reading today, but it would be a very, as you know, a very long story. It goes into chapters. But that's important because at the end of the story, the brothers come to Egypt. They don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them. He could say, I forgive you, but he takes them through a process. And the first bit is when he tells them to go back and get their father's favorite son, who by that stage, of course, is Benjamin, because their dad thinks Joseph is dead. And that's an analogy, isn't it? It's a, it's a practice of running through of what they've done before, where they've taken Joseph, God's, um, Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, and sold him into slavery. And he takes one of the brothers hostage while they do that, and as they're on their way, they admit they're guilty. It's the first time they realize that there's guilt, and together they say, this is what we did, isn't it? Then there's a confession that comes later on, when they go back with their brother, and everything's great except Joseph plants the cup in Benjamin's sack. Seems like a strange thing to do, doesn't it? But it's part of the process, because when he then arrests, Joseph, arrests Benjamin and says, right, Benjamin's going to be thrown into prison now, you can all go back, but Benjamin won't go back to his father. Um, you're going to have to say that he's as good as dead to, to Jacob, the father. Suddenly, they accept their guilt and they confess it before Joseph, and they say to him that they're in his debt. They still haven't recognized him, of course, but they confess that they did this to their brother. They don't realize he's standing in front of them. But then there's a behavioral change, finally, because at that moment, Judah steps forward and says, I will take Benjamin's place. Judah, remember, was the one who proposed the selling into slavery, wasn't he? He takes the opportunity to say, in a different situation now, I recognize what I was in before, but now I will take the place of Benjamin. I could have done exactly what I did with Joseph. I could um, disown him, go back to my dad, and just leave the situation as it is, but he doesn't. Because he's recognized he's wrong, and now he's been put in the same position, he shows his change, he's a new person, he's different. Now, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and if you've not come across him, he died sadly a couple of years ago, but he has a wonderful legacy page, and he's a great uh, Jewish theologian. He defines it as complete repentance, this. When the circumstances repeat themselves and you've got the opportunity to change and do what you should have done in the first place to show that you really have forgiven, you really are worthy of being forgiven. Because forgiveness can only exist as such in a culture in which repentance exists. 
because repentance proposes that we are free and morally responsible agents who are capable of change. Specifically the change that comes about when we recognize that something we've done is wrong, we're responsible for it, and we must never do it again. Greece and other cultures were shame-based cultures. You had to give the person back their dignity. It was about your character and fate. But in Judaism, we get the culture of free will and choice and guilt. And in that culture, you can be truly forgiven. And that was adopted by Christianity, that wonderful idea. But actually, there's more than that in Christianity, because Christians brought in a fuller dimension. Because only for Christians is there an obligation to forgive. Only is it a command. In the earlier Jewish tradition, that was not quite the case. Only for Christians was there an obligation to forgive the person. As it says in Colossians, if you forgive those against you, you'll have, oh, forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. If you forgive those, Jesus says, against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you, like the unforgiving servant in the story today, refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. This is different. This is further along this trail. There appears to be no admission on the part of the offender of guilt or confession mentioned. Now this is difficult, isn't it? Um, because can we really ask people who have gone through the most awful abuses and have had terrible perpetrators against them, can we really suggest that they say, I forgive you to those people? even when there is no sign of repentance or change. Is that really just or fair? Is it right? Well, some people have responded to this. In his book called Justice, Nicholas Walterstuff argues, and he's a Christian, he argues that the Christian duty to forgive is a third-party duty. So when somebody validly asks me or commands me to forgive, a wrongdoer, it's the one who commands me who has the right against me and not the wrongdoer. When Jesus commands us to forgive those who wronged us, it's God who's freely taken the initiative in forgiving us, who has the right against us, not the perpetrator. And this right is founded entirely on God's gracious belief in our infinite worth as human beings. So when we forgive, we enact this belief for ourselves and for the rest of humanity. It is our gift given to us by God. But Waltensdorf says that nobody has a right to demand forgiveness from us. And that's a particularly important point when thinking of victims of terrible abuse and injustice. The perpetrator has no right to forgiveness from us. They may well ask for it. They may well do that. But our duty is primarily towards God to forgive. The difference I'd suggest is subtle, but it is essential psychologically, emotionally, and in terms of justice. An illustration of this can be found in the story in The Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal. Now, if you've heard of Simon Wiesenthal, he um, was a Jew who was 
taken into a Nazi concentration camp with many of his family during World War II, and many of them were killed or tortured. And it's called the sunflower because during his daily work in this labor camp, he would see a grave there of a Jew, a Jewish SS um, man that was there with a gravestone, and on that grave grew a sunflower. And he knew that his own people weren't afforded the dignity of a grave. Um, but here was an SS man who was, and not only that, but a sunflower, beautiful sunflower grew on it. And it troubled him. He couldn't understand the justice or the reasoning behind all that. But one day he was taken to the hospital on the camp, um, outside the camp, at the request of Carl, who was an SS uh, soldier. And Carl was dying. He'd been mortally wounded. And tormented by the crimes in which he participated, he asked for a Jewish man to come to his side in his hospital uh, bed. And there he um, said he wanted to confess, particularly to a terrible crime where he had had the choice to grant forgiveness and grant grace to a family, um, but he had chosen to murder them and a small child. And he wanted to confess to a Jew, because they were Jews, who he'd murdered, and if possible receive absolution from a Jew. And Wiesenthal sat and listened to the man, and he sat in silence, and then he left the room in silence. He didn't acquiesce, he didn't give the man what he wanted. And for the rest of his life, it troubled Wiesenthal. Um, he went on to um, go on to do many of the um, trials of the people who had um, perpetrated these crimes to assist with that and to assist in finding those people because he believed um, that it was right to seek justice for those people. Um, but it troubled him here because the man he said was truly repentant, he really believed he was sincere, but Wiesenthal was not able to say, I forgive you. And he asked about the limits of forgiveness. Must we, can we forgive a repentant criminal no matter how bad the crime? Can we forgive crimes committed against other people? Could he commit, um, forgive a crime committed against the other Jews and not against him? And 25 years later, he published a book where he asked members of different faith communities and people who had no faith to answer the simple question, what was I right to not forgive? Was I right to not offer him forgiveness? And it was interesting their answers, they differed. But one of them said that her students, without exception, she was a teacher, and her Christian students, without exception, came out in favour of forgiveness, whilst her Jewish students felt that Simon did the right thing by not granting the dying man's wish. And the reason they believed that their students had said that, the reason given was that three-step process um, in the story of Joseph. The man had seen his guilt, he had repented, but he could not and did not do a different thing in the situation where he was put again, had he had the situation again. Because he was on his deathbed, he couldn't prove to himself, to God and to others that he was a different person. For him, it was too late. But the Christians were a new creation. Um, as we heard in that reading, 
from the book of 2 Corinthians. If any man is in Christ, if any one is in Christ, um, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And the Christian anthropologist says it's different. It's different now in that situation, and that is the change difference. Desmond Tutu said when he read the story and was asked about that, and remember Desmond Tutu was the man who, who was in charge of the um, Truth and Reconciliation um, Committee and the proceedings in South Africa, went through terrible things about hearing from people who uh, needed forgiveness or needed some sort of reconciliation. He said that he agreed that it must have been an incredibly hard situation for Simon to be in. But in the end, he said that Simon should have forgiven him. And he said it on the basis of, without forgiveness, there is no future. Without forgiveness, there is no future. So those are some thoughts today that I've come up with and other people have come up with much um, deeper and cleverer than me, um, and some of them we need to think through a lot deeper, don't we? We've no right to judge others, that's what we're saying, I think, we're saying here. We've no right to judge others who can't forgive, no right to um, feel that we should impose that on other people, but our duty before God as Christians, as new creations, is to treat others as new creations and to, before God, forgive, before God because God in Christ has forgiven us. So I'll finish by reiterating what Tim said at the start of his talk last week. The point of Lent is not to do something which makes us better people, particularly purify ourselves, prove to God that our prayers are worthy or desperate enough. The whole point about Lent is to open ourselves up, to give space to God to give space to his love, his forgiving love, because we already know that we are loved so much by God. Amen.